Even now, it's hard to envision the fact that not one but two 110-story buildings actually collapsed in Lower Manhattan. The whole country, when that happened, we were the whole country, no matter where you were, you were all New Yorkers. Angeles. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again. This is a special double edition of Code 3. We're taking a look back at the terror attacks of September 11, 2001 in New York City. By now, I'm sure you've been reminded several times that it's been 20 years since that tragic day. But I still find it hard to comprehend. It feels like yesterday to me. And I'm sure if you were around for it, you feel the same. Today, I have interviews with two members of the FDNY who were part of the recovery efforts at Ground Zero. Let's get started. Tom Dunn is now a retired deputy chief with 33 years in the FDNY. He's been the incident commander at hundreds of fires and emergencies in New York City. And he was working at the FDNY on the day of the terror attacks. Tom Dunn joins me now to tell his story. Welcome back to Code 3. Thank you, Scott. Thanks again for inviting me. It's good to be here. Well, here we are 20 years after, and what I'd like to do first is have you set the scene. What house were you working that morning? What, what were you doing? What was that morning all about before things started to happen? I came in early that morning. I, I was scheduled to work a 24-hour tour. I came in. It was one thing people always remember is how beautiful the weather was that day. It was perfectly clear sky, sunny, incredibly nice weather. I was scheduled to be in at work. My, my shift was from 9 o'clock that morning till 9 the following morning. And as we most often do, I was in work early to relieve the guy who had worked the night before me. I must have arrived at work uh, probably about 8 o'clock that morning. And what were you doing at that point? At that point, I was a deputy chief assigned to the 7th Division, which covers half of the Bronx and northern Manhattan. I had just moved into that division. I wound up the last 13 years of my uh, career in the 7th Division. Uh, I was relatively new to the division. I had just transferred in to that division from Manhattan probably about six weeks earlier. And um, I came into the division that morning. Uh, it was it was like any other morning. I was wondering who you're going to have uh, to work with that day, what kind of things you'll wind up doing. As I said, it was a beautiful day. I came in early to relieve the fellow who worked the night, the chief who worked the night tour before. Uh, and I just started uh, really organizing my day, looking at what type of uh, outside activities or training uh, things we had scheduled for the day. Uh, as always, I had the department radio playing in the background so I could hear what was going on both in the Bronx and, and Manhattan and other parts of the city. And I, at the same time, most likely, I, I'm sure I had the uh, CNN or one of the news stations uh, on TV in the background, too. Good things are happening. 
good things right here at Good Morning America. I'm Diane Sawyer. Look downstairs. Those are good things. That's a happening downstairs. And I'm Charles Gibson. Good to see you. Hope you had a good weekend. And in this half hour, Michael Jackson. And it, it was just a, you know, another typical uh, one of hundreds and hundreds of mornings um, you spend coming to the firehouse, not thinking much other than uh, what are the activities for the day? What am I going to do? Are we going to catch any fires? Are, are there any training activities I want to get involved with today? Well, what type of administrative chores uh, am I faced with uh, this morning? And like everyone else, I, I started hearing about a plane crashing into one of the Trade Center towers. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. Now, is that how the initial dispatch came across, that it was a plane that ran into the building? Well, what I had heard, this was really through the media. I had heard that a plane had gone into a building, and like a lot of people, I assumed that it was one of these small Cessnas or something that perhaps had, you know, had hit the building. And, and while that certainly would be a significant thing, none of us had any idea that it would be uh, as involved as it was. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And once, once I heard that, naturally I, I turned on uh, the Manhattan uh, frequency to know exactly what was going on and really started hearing, you know, unbelievable things, you know, as, as you got more and more involved in hearing the reports. We just had a, a plane crash into upper floor of the World Trade Center, transmit a second alarm and start relocating companies into the area. The first two chiefs and the first two units down there and realizing that, especially after the second plane hit, that this was an off-the-scale type of operation that, uh, you know, none of us had ever seen the likes of before. Now, that was not your first due area, right? No, it wasn't. Uh, my first due area would have covered northern Manhattan. Uh, so at any one time in New York City, there are uh, nine deputy chiefs on duty. New York City is uh, carved up into nine uh, different divisions. And my division went as far south, uh, basically, as northern Manhattan. So this was well out of my response area. I knew that initially, especially when it got so involved as it did, that there would be at least three uh, deputy chiefs assigned to the scene. And there were only nine of us on duty at that time uh, in the city. So uh, now I knew there was a possibility that I was going to be sent down there. And that was a very awkward position to be in because here I am sitting in my own division in the northern part of the city, uh, listening to the dispatch on the radio, watching the media, wondering at any moment, well, at what point are they going to call me down there? And at the same time thinking, well, you know, especially after the first building collapsed and, and still not having been dispatched down there, thinking, well, well what? 
what am I going to do? You know, uh, at that point, what is going to be left of the fire department chain of command or bureaucracy? I didn't know it at the time, but already one of the deputy chiefs had been killed. And I knew given the amount of damage that was done, that this was an off the scale type of operation. And I was, I was starting to think, all right, there's only six deputies left that they're going to call. Uh, if I go down there, I have to be prepared to make some pretty difficult decisions. And at the time I was thinking this, the South Tower, one of the towers was still standing. It hadn't yet collapsed. And I thought, I started realistically thinking, I go down there, uh, I don't know if there's anyone left in charge or what's going on. If I have to make a strategic decision, what am I gonna do? And I, I started realizing Given what just happened, the only thing I would feel personally comfortable doing is ordering all my people out of the remaining tower, uh, because it just seemed to make sense. If the first one collapsed and the second one is burning furiously, uh, undoubtedly there's a lot of structural damage. The same thing is going to happen. And as I was thinking that, at the same time I was thinking, well, my plan involves basically abandoning the operation, which was, you know, an extremely difficult thing to think about. So I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with this, sitting on the edge of my seat, listening, waiting to be called. And unbeknownst to me, there was a very, very experienced chief working in the lobby of, of the building at the time who had the exact same thinking, made the exact same decision. He, he radioed for his personnel to start leaving the building. And unfortunately, Many of them did not make it out. Take two. Take two and two, one. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. And uh, I think there were probably a few reasons for that. But one of them may have been simply technical reasons. His broadcast may well not have been heard by many of the people. It, it was an enormous building, and it's very possible that the radios were not capable of, of transmitting that message to people, especially the, the chiefs and firefighters on the upper floors. Along with that is the, the mentality of the of firefighters in general, and New York City firefighters in particular. They're, they're very courageous people, very determined people. I, I, would, I would think that Many, if not most of them, if not all of them, were, were so targeted on taking care of people, taking care of civilians, trying to get them evacuated, that even if they heard the message, yeah, well, maybe they were going to leave, but they weren't just going to leave alone without slowing down a bit and, and trying to save building residents, saving civilians. So this was kind of what was going through my mind, and apparently also through the mind of the, the, the man who was operating as the incident commander after the first attack, uh, who, who made the same decision I would have made, which is to evacuate personnel from the building. And, and as you know, unfortunately, uh, the, the tragedy is that it didn't work, that we lost 343 of our own, a good number of uh, police officers and, of course, thousands of civilians uh, uh, did not make it out that day. You were still in your house waiting to be dispatched when the North Tower fell. Did you get dispatched between that time and the time that the South Tower fell? No, I was not. I was not at the scene when either tower fell. 
I, I spent the entire day, the day tour into the night tour, working from my office in, in the northern part of the city. I don't even recall getting any of the fires that day, which was kind of unusual for us. We, we were generally out the door at least two or three times, if not more, for structural fires over the course of a 24-hour tour. Did you find that frustrating? I did. I found it very frustrating because uh, I, I always felt this way at any fire or emergency. I, I would rather be at the scene actually functioning uh, contributing, making decisions, being a part of it. I felt I felt whenever I responded, even to the simplest fire, um, I was always most nervous uh, as I was responding, uh, re- responding in on the car, listening to whatever reports I could get on the radio. Uh, it wasn't until I finally arrived at the scene of most fires where it was kind of like a I felt like a boxer stepping into the ring and getting the first shot to the head. At that point, uh, there was there was always kind of a calm that, that took over me, and I was able to function into my role as a firefighter or a chief or whatever I was at the time. And uh, certainly on 9-11, that was my feeling. It was um, a very frustrating day to see something uh, so enormous going on and being in a position where I, I was contributing uh, from a distance and in, in organizing and, and getting uh, resources together, uh, but at the same time, was it was very frustrating not to be a part of it, not to be able to contribute initially in some way, and and quite frankly, at the same time, it was it was kind of frightening, you know, to see something that big unfold right in front of you, and, and as I watched the second building come down, to realize that. It wasn't just my department now that was affected, and, and undoubtedly, at the time, I thought dozens of, of my own people were killed. Now I knew that, in fact, literally thousands of, of civilians were dying down there. Uh, I'm sure everyone that day, whether they were emergency responders or civilians, felt the same. It was kind of a frightening experience. And uh, as I said, I went through this the, the entire day, finally got dispatched probably about sometime between 1.30 and 2 o'clock in the morning. I finally got a call from the dispatcher saying, all right, you're, you're now assigned to go downtown. And it was a sense of both relief and determination at that point because I felt like, well, you know, the worst seems to be over. You know, what more could happen? It was still rather a strange experience because I was sent down with a group of uh, battalion chiefs. And at that point, the way we went down to the Trade Center, even our, our means of transport was off the scale. We, we stopped a New York City bus, a transit bus, and we told them we were going to the Trade Center. So we're, we were all accustomed to responding on emergency apparatus. And here we were going down to lower Manhattan on a bus. It just felt, you know, it felt very strange. It, it added to the, 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 the oddness of the day. And finally, I probably arrived down there Oh, probably close to three o'clock in the morning. Uh, the bus probably dropped us off somewhere north of 14th Street or thereabouts. And we started a long walk to go down south. And, and I will always remember what it felt like that night to be walking uh, closer and closer to the Trade Center and you know, trudging through this ankle deep dust at that point and seeing remnants of, of cars and things burning on the ground, a portion of the, one of the jet engines there, and uh, finally arrived at a staging area, uh, a little bit north of maybe about oh, six, seven blocks north of the Trade Center. 
And I saw a chief I'd worked with in the past who was operating as sort of a logistics and organizing officer. And I reported it to him. And he clearly was beaten up. He had been there for hours and hours and, and he was covered with dust and you could barely hear his voice. He had a very hard, a very coarse voice from having tried to communicate all day long. He gave me my assignment. They, they initially, the first thing they did to organize, I mentioned uh, organizing is always a challenge in any fire operation, certainly one of, of this enormous size. They had split up the Trade Center site which was a 16-acre site in, in dimension, into four different segments. And I was assigned to the, the one that would be on the northeast side. So rather than being in a position of trying to supervise 16 acres of devastation, now I'm assigned a specific corner, which now is roughly four acres. And uh, again, I went down there, and it was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. It was just off the scale in terms of size, in terms of intensity. I remember I didn't even have a radio initially to communicate with. The first night, we didn't have the proper mask that they required after a couple of days to keep the dust out of your face. A few people had those paper masks uh, that you would put on your face if you're sanding sheetrock, but I felt somewhat unprepared physically. I, I didn't have a radio. I didn't have any any respiratory protection for my breathing and when i got to my sector of the operation it, all it was was this enormous pile of rubble and, and smoke and uh it was loaded with people there were firefighters all over the pile there were police officers there were even a few civilian volunteers who had just um you know stepped up and, and tried to assist in some way so it, it took a while to get a handle on that. That was, without a doubt, the most difficult organizing thing I was ever faced with. And and the people who worked there did the best they could. Uh, right away, you saw debris lines starting to form where uh, firefighters and police officers worked hand in hand, you know, handing pieces of debris up and down this line of personnel, trying to clear areas that they could crawl into to to hopefully rescue people. And uh, as we know, in retrospect, uh, unfortunately, there weren't that many rescues to be made uh, that night or, or days afterwards. It was just, it became a recovery operation pretty quickly. So now you mentioned that nobody really had the right sort of masks for the job. We know what happened as a result of being around all that crap in the air. At the time, did anybody think about that and what it might do to them, or was there more concern about getting in there and trying to find victims? I think I think that was put on hold. Uh, there was so much to do uh, that night. It, it was almost as if, uh, you know, you had to dive into an ocean to rescue someone who was drowning. You, you don't think about it. Uh, if you thought about it, you couldn't have done it and you shouldn't have been there. It became something I started thinking about in, in the days afterwards, you know, uh, but by then their logistics and organization had gotten infinitely better and they were providing anything you needed, whatever you needed in terms of safety or equipment, it was there. 
But at least for that that first night, I, I wasn't relieved, I think, until about, oh, maybe 10 o'clock the following morning. So I spent all of the night there. You didn't even think about that. There was just so much to do, so much devastation. We still had hopes of finding a lot of people. Afterwards, as they started working down there, because they worked like most New York City firefighters, I spent several months uh, at the site trying to organize, trying to recover, trying to... to uh, establish a level of safety and, and hopefully, uh, if not rescue people, at least remove the, the victims from the scene. Uh, then I would I would think, uh, as I think most firefighters gave a little bit of thought to, because all you had to do is go into southern Manhattan at any point, and you could tell from the scent of the air that it, it was not it was not clean air. It was not a safe place to work. And unfortunately, as, as we all know now, to this day, there are still people struggling and hurting, suffering from various forms of cancer and other disabilities from their work down there, not, not to mention the many, many um, both firefighters and police officers and civilians who have subsequently uh, you know, passed away uh, due to the, the exposure of the Trade Center toxins. So 10 a.m. rolls around. They finally say, go home. You've been up long enough. I'm imagining that you went home and you could not sleep, but I want to jump forward a little bit and ask, did you go back out to the scene when you reported in the next time, or did you go back to the house and just run calls? Well, I went back to the house, but what happened was, and this went on for a couple of weeks, I found out myself and all of us were working extra shifts. We were both working our standard 24-hour firefighting shifts in our assigned firehouses. Uh, They also started instituting... Um, schedules for us to go down to the trade center. Uh, so I would uh, work my 24-hour shift. I might be off for a day or so, and then I had to fit in. I think at, initially it was um, two or three tours a week down at the trade center site in addition to the firefighting duty. And then you would spend your, I think initially there were 12, 12-hour 12 shifts at the trade center, and you do your work down there, uh, go home, uh, perhaps get a day off or something, and then you were back in the firehouse doing your fire duty and that would be followed up by another tour down at the trade center so you know it, it was a tough time that called for a tough schedule and of course in between and along while all this was happening um the endless department funerals of people that the guys you worked with or guys maybe you didn't even know that passed away and um they were constant funerals so i do remember fitting uh, trying to fit that in as well as i could too uh, it was a very difficult uh, couple of months. I, I put my months in down there. Finally, I was relieved and was probably January. I was back to only firefighting duty. But there were uh, there were people assigned to work down there, uh, you know, upwards of a year or more later, p- piecing things back together. We could obviously talk about this for hours, but we don't have hours. So I'll just ask you this. What is the one most striking thing that you recall about this whole thing 20 years ago? I think, I think there's really two things. And the first thing was um, the absurdity of it all. None of us could have imagined that this would happen. I, I cannot, even now it's hard to envision the fact that not one but two 110-story buildings actually collapsed in lower Manhattan. That, that was an off-the-scale concept that short of that, high-rise fire they had in Philadelphia decades ago, 
no one ever even thought or imagined that we might be dealing with the actual collapse of a, of a, a high rise in, in New York City, much less two uh, two biggest high rises and and uh, several buildings next to it collapsing. So I think the absurdity of it kind of sticks with me. But the other thing that sticks with me is kind of a positive thing, and and that is the experience of what it was like in New York City for weeks and really months after 9-11, to see how people just kind of drew together. And whatever differences or disagreements we had, whether they were political or whatever, it just went by the wayside. New York, and to some extent our whole country, was basically one community for some period after that. Uh, people were, were stepping up right and left. Anything you needed in lower Manhattan was available to you. And at the end of our, our long shifts at the Trade Center, um, often we'd be loaded up in buses to go back to our firehouses. And there were people standing along the West Side Highway of Manhattan, basically cheering us on for weeks and weeks afterwards, encouraging us, supporting us. So I think th those two things will always stick with me, how, how off the scale and unbelievable uh, an event it was. But along with that, uh, how positive uh, it was to get the support and, and the really the brotherhood that we experienced for the, for weeks and months uh, after 9-11. Well, it was definitely a life-changing event. I know that, and I was on this coast when it happened. Thank you for everything you did on that day and the weeks and months that followed. And Tom Dunn, thanks for joining me on Code 3 today. Scott, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I, I really appreciate uh, the invitation, and uh, thank you. Now let's hear from Jerry Sanford. He was retired from the FDNY on September 11, 2001, but he ended up going back to work in New York City anyway. Jerry wrote a book about the experience, and we'll have info on that book at the end of the interview. Jerry, good to have you here. Thank you, Scott. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So you have a different kind of September 11 story. You were officially retired from the FDNY as a PIL, but you were working at a fire department again, this time in Florida. Then you were back in New York City on September 8th. Tell me why you were there on that day. Well, Scott, I retired in 97 from the fire department in New York. I moved down here in 2000 and unretired and got hired by the North Naples Fire Department. And about a month later, the chief took me. He said to me, we have an old New York City fire helmet here. I said, yeah, but we're in Naples, Florida. How'd you get that? He said, a man walked in one day. He said it was his father's helmet, and he said he didn't want it anymore. So they had it up on the wall in the sitting room. Uh, the red front piece on it had 4-2, and I immediately knew it was from the South Bronx. In fact, it was from the fire commissioner's old firehouse. I had just retired. He was my boss, and that was his firehouse. So I called him at headquarters and told him where I was and I had a helmet, would I? Would you like me to bring it back? And he said, yes, we would love to bring it back. But he said, look, the house is being torn apart. And then about July of 2001, he said to me, you better start making your plans because the firehouse is, is all almost finished and it's going to be rededicated on September 10th, 2001. 
Now, that was just another day back then. You know, it didn't mean anything. So on September 8th, I got the man who gave us the helmet. It was his father's helmet, and it dated back to 1914. So this was a very, very old leather helmet that made its way from the South Bronx way back. His father had retired in 1955. He spent about 40 years on the job in New York. On September 8th, we flew to New York, two chiefs and George Kuntz Jr. and myself, and I took him to I took him to Harlem where I worked in Ladder 23 and then to Red Hook, Brooklyn, Ladder 131, and a number of places and fire communications. And then on the morning of September 10th, we wound up in the Bronx at the Engine 73 Ladder 42. And there were hundreds and hundreds of firefighters there for the rededication ceremony, including uh, Mayor Giuliani and a number of the high-ranking chiefs that I had worked with and had just left three, four years before. So that so that went very well. You had all the VIPs there and you had a bunch of people to celebrate. That's correct, yes. And then on, on the 11th, you got on a plane back to Florida in the morning and then what happened? We got as far as Pittsburgh changing planes when I was called to a television set about quarter to nine and looked up and saw that the one tower had been struck by a plane, which immediately threw me into a state of shock, Scott, seeing something that I couldn't imagine had happened. And I walked back to get on the plane and the pilot was standing out uh, on the outside as they used to stand there and welcome aboard their customers. And I was mumbling something and I told him, I said, hey, Cap, something just happened in New York. A plane just flew into the World Trade Center. So I sat down and he closed the door and we backed up maybe 500 feet. Plane stopped and he said, okay, the FAA has grounded all flights, so you're getting off the plane. We exited the plane in Pittsburgh airport to pandemonium, Scott. People screaming, running all over the place. We had no idea what was going on. So we all got online to rent a car, which took quite a while. And at the, we didn't know at the time that right as we were waiting there trying to get a car, a second plane had hit the second tower. A plane had crashed into the Pentagon. And then lastly, Shanksville. You rented a car and you made your way back down to Florida. Correct. Which, which took quite a while. Yes, we wanted to try to get our cars that we left in the airport and our luggage. And of course, they were scared to death of us, the airport. If you can imagine an airport with nobody in it. We finally got in and the people said, uh, first of all, who are you? So we tinned them. We showed them our badges. We told them we were from the local fire department. And they said they would assure us they would get our luggage to us. So that was Wednesday. Thursday, I went back into work and I said to the chief, look, I don't know if this is going to cost me my job, but I'm going back to New York. And fortunately... But it didn't cost you your job because he was very understanding of the situation. He certainly was. He was just with me. He was in New York. So he understood the crisis. He under, uh, 
understood what was going on. Now, you happen to have airline tickets to Philadelphia for a family event, right? Yes. And from there, you made it back to New York City on on the 11th? I, I made it to New York City on the, I guess it wasn't until Monday, I think the 16th. And there I was standing on West Street, looking down at this scene that I thought was from a Hollywood movie, Scott. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Firemen looked like little ants crawling all over this debris pile with the smoke. And uh, it was just the worst days of my life. What was the first thing you thought when you got a look at Ground Zero? Uh, How could this have happened in my city? where I was a police officer and a firefighter for 30 years. You know, normally you see destruction like that, and it's, from, it's over in Europe, in one of those countries. But to see it here in New York City, it was devastating. Uh, that's, I guess, the best word to use, Scott. And you got to work right away. What did they put you to work doing? I rejoined Mayor Giuliani's press corps over at the Pier 92 on the Hudson River. And we held uh, every two hours, the mayor, we would get in different reports from the site. Did we find anybody to keep the media abreast of what we were doing? And then I did that for about uh, three days. And then the fire commissioner said, we can use you back here in our press office. So uh, I wound up back doing my job as the press secretary in New York City Fire Department. You obviously never expected to do that, even though after you retired, you unretired. But you didn't expect to go back to work at the FDNY. No. Who could have known that the day before, the men I was with up in the South Bronx, about 10 or 11 of them were killed, and I had just had lunch with them. I mean, that's a, that was a heavy thing to, to digest, that my friends that were sitting around having a sandwich and a beer, and they were gone the next day not even 24 hours later, including Father Judge. So that was quite a heavy toll it took on me and a lot of a lot of men. There was a famous photo of Michael Judge's body being brought out of the wreckage, was there not? Yes, there is. I have a copy of it here in my home somewhere. But yes, in fact, there's a local fire department here, Benita Springs, and they had a French painter that they hired, and he painted a beautiful mural on the side of the firehouse. And every time I ride by, in fact, I just rode by this morning, and I always say, good morning, Father Mike. His picture is up with the same picture you're referring to, Scott, with the three firemen uh, carrying his body, his lifeless body, out of the Twin Towers. He was seen at multiple alarms. If there was a firefighter near death, he would be at the hospital or at the burn center. So he was, uh, his, he had a, a big reputation. Like I said, he was one of our uh, five or six uh, different chaplains of all faiths. And, uh, but he was well-loved and well-liked by the judge. How did you feel about this when they wanted you to work as a PIO again? Did you want to be at the scene actually digging, or were you happy to do your part as a PIO? I, I, Scott, I would have been... Just as happy to go down and dig with my brother firefighters looking for the remains. But I felt I could I could contribute more by going back into the press office and doing what I had done for nine years as the uh, public information officer. And I dealt with uh, 
major, all the major networks from around the country and around the world, I might add. A lot of the television shows that we all watch, I was behind the scenes because almost daily I would take a film crew down to the site so they could get their B-roll and get a little bite, uh, just enough for them to show on the nightly news. So I felt I was, I was more valuable in that capacity than to be down uh, digging with the other brothers. What was the attitude like among those guys who spent all those hours in the rubble? I mean, we were all brothers. I mean, we all tried to help each other. And in fact, in many cases, we had retired firefighters looking for their sons. Oh. And that was, I can't even imagine. I have two sons that neither of them are in the fire department. But I can't even imagine what, what, what feelings. I worked with an outstanding captain in Brooklyn. His name was John Vigiano. And in fact, he just passed away last year. And he had two missing sons, two. One was a police officer assigned to ESU, that's Emergency Services Unit, and the other was assigned to a truck company in Brooklyn. And there was the Vig uh, going down uh, along with other retired firefighters that came back and were going through looking for their sons. I can't even imagine looking for two sons. It's hard enough to lose a child, but to have to find the body yourself. Oh, I think both of his sons were recovered, Scott. In fact, we just lost his father, John, a battalion chief, a legend in the job. And we we just presented, we put a brick in. I Down here in Naples, we have a Freedom Memorial. And around it, we have a, a brick walkway. And just last year, members of my retired firefighters group, we bought a brick and the three... Vigiano firefighter John, his son, and the police officer are there forever on a brick in the memorial. But, you know, I met a number of, of these retired firefighters and officers that were looking for their sons, and I, I didn't even know how to talk to them. How do you, what kind of words do you use, Scott, to uh, comfort them when we're looking for their kids? You know, to this day, I can't, I can't. Boy, that would be a terrible thing, terrible thing to do. But they were there. They were there, some of them every day. How did the news media act? You dealt with them uh, very closely. Were they understanding of the limitations that you had to impose on them, or did they give you a hard time? Yeah, the, the news media, see, they all wanted to go into a firehouse, and they wanted to interview right. a firefighter or a grieving widow or somebody, I could go in because I just retired and I could go in and cry and grieve with the firefighters. So it was rare that I that we would allow the media into a firehouse. We would have uh, limited interviews outside the firehouse, but to bring them into a safe zone, I mean, that's where we, we were all safe inside the firehouse. Well, it's your home. It's your second home. It's our home, you know. We'd close the door and we'd cry and we'd talk and we'd remember, we'd remember the brother that is still missing. Don't forget, this was still, you know, we were still holding out hope that somebody and more than one people, not only firefighters, that we would 
we could we would find civilians and then after i forget how many days it went to it went from a rescue mission to a recovery it, it we soon found out that every day the mayor would get in front of a bank of microphones and tearfully say i'm sorry but we have not recovered anybody today you know a, a real heartwarming scene that i want to share with you scott is that uh, every day there was only they allowed uh, it, one way in and one way out and that was usually on west street and just so you know that's right next to the hudson river and no matter what time of day or night that we would go in or come out there were thousands like i'm trying not to cry thousands of people standing with flags and saluting us the first responders for going in and 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 helping i mean that was a, a moment i would never ever forget i ne- i didn't know them they didn't know me but we were all new yorkers in fact the whole country when that happened we were the whole country no matter where you were you were all new yorkers i mean you couldn't you couldn't buy a flag you couldn't fire you couldn't find the flag i mean the unity amongst all of us back in 2001 was unprecedented i've never seen anything like that or since then let me tell you what i experienced i was in las vegas in the at the end of september and i walked up to the new york new york resort and casino you know it, it has the really big scale models of the statue of liberty and the skyline and out in the street level there's a fence to keep you from climbing and all that stuff and i i walked around the corner and there were just thousands and thousands of fire department t-shirts that people had hung on that fence from fire departments all over the world i almost dropped to my knees i couldn't believe it i didn't, i mean nowadays i would expect to see something like that but at the time i had no idea that, that would be there i believe that scott that's that's so beautiful is probably not the word but the the respect that it, that was shown by what you just said it's priceless you can't put a price on on that you know to see something uh, outstanding uh, like that you know even today when you say you're a firefighter people look at you a little differently you know and i'm not patting myself on the back i'm not i'm not asking for accolades but you know doing it over 50 years people you know they just look at you a little differently you know and uh the respect they have for us and like i uh when i when i speak every now and then at our fire academy down here when the kids graduate i tell them you know don't tell anybody what we have we have the greatest job in the world i said there's 100,000 applicants to try to get on the new york city fire department 100,000 people try to become a firefighter and I tell these kids always leave the job better than what you found it. Okay, you're going into a profession, be proud of it. Enjoy the run. That's kind of the message I like to uh tell them because you can go anywhere in the world and walk into a firehouse and you say the magic word, I'm a firefighter. I'm lost. I need a gallon of gas or I'm hungry. The doors open. They're happy to help whether they've ever made before or not. Yes. Yes. 
I'm glad that you were able to be there to help them out after everything they were going through. You know, I remember seeing a news report of a reporter standing in a, I believe it was at a warehouse where they were staging ambulances to transport the victims. And this poor reporter said, I've been here for hours and nobody is coming. There's nobody coming here. And they realized it was because everybody had been killed. Nobody was just injured. The hospitals in Lower Manhattan, St. Vincent's and Beekman and all of those, they had body bags. They had refrigerated trailers at the hospitals because of what you just said. And doctors and nurses poured into those hospitals expecting to be treating people. And there was no patients. There was nobody. Uh, th there might have been a body or a part of a body. You know, it was... Uh, the scene was very grim down there. It was very grim. How much time did you get to spend at the actual Ground Zero scene? Were you able to get over there much? Yes, I would go there every day or every other day with the film crew, and I'd let them get some B-roll. They'd get their shot. I didn't allow them too much, you know, to get in there. And one of my, one of my favorite locations was uh, Engine 10 and Ladder 10, which is on Liberty Street, which is right across the street from the uh, devastation. And uh, that building, ama amazingly, that firehouse didn't suffer too much damage. So I would take them up onto the roof. And from that position, they could get their shot right into where the firefighters and the iron workers. And, you know, a lot has not been said about those people, the iron workers, the construction people, that all flocked down there. You know, a lot of these men built the World Trade Center, and now they come back, now they come back years later and help look moving debris and help to look for survivors. And uh, they're kind of the missing uh, link. You know, I always try to give a shout out to the construction workers from the electrical union, the plumbers union, the crane, the crane guys, the guys in the truck. And, uh, you know, they got sick from the, from what they ingested, just like I got sick, you know? I mean, there was no distinction. Everybody uh, was breathing in that same crap uh, from, uh, you know, don't forget, two huge hundred-story buildings came down with computers and furniture and humans and all, and combined to make one stink, one big, in that smoke that we all saw was uh, I've never smelt anything like it before in my life. In fact, so many people have died since 9-11. Now it's 20 years, over 250 police officers and as many firefighters have died after 9-11 that actually died on that day. So it's so we know that it's 343, but if you total it up, it's really closer to 600 firefighters died. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. In fact, this 9-11, I'm arranging a 20th anniversary remembrance ceremony here in Naples. We're going to have it inside in the gymnasium. We're going to read the names for the first time. 343 firefighters, 42 Port Authority cops, and about 38 policemen. But after that, the post deaths are over 250 for each department. 
So if you add that up right now, I think we have a total of 915, including everybody that was killed that day. And unfortunately, the count goes up every day. Once a week, Scott, I get a message on my phone that we lost another police officer or a firefighter. They succumbed to the 9-11 illness. It's a hell of a story. Wow. Okay. The book is, it started with a helmet, a retired firefighter's return to New York City the day before 9-11. It's available on our website. Jerry Sanford, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Thank you, my friend. God bless you. Stay well. And you can order his book. It started with a helmet on our website, Code3Podcast.com. Check it out. If these stories brought back unpleasant memories of a horrible time, you still might want to share this podcast with your younger probies. The stories reminded me that life can change in an instant, especially in this profession. That's a lesson young firefighters need to learn so they can always be ready. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.